Episode 186 is here, everybody, with award-winning New York-based art advisor, author, and curator. Please welcome the one and only Maria Brito. The Optimal Life. So, uh, as we were saying, I was just saying, I was checking out your Instagram, and you said that uh, I was saying that you have quite the collection, and you said that's my job. So, uh, what exactly is your job, Maria? I'm an art advisor, and I help people build art collections for their enjoyment and their also financial growth. I curate uh, their collections too, so I choose what to hang on the walls, how to display, how to rotate, and that's part of the things that I do amongst some others that have to also do with the art world. Um, I also am an educator. I have a creativity online program that is not just for artists, it's for anybody who want to harness the power of their ideas to make more money or to come up with better ideas in their business or to pivot their businesses or to build the confidence to change careers and things like that. So I, I have learned a tremendous amount of information from some of the most important artists in the world, and I've translated that into my own practice, my own business, and also I teach that to my students. So you went to Harvard. I did, but I went to law school. So I transitioned because I, I hated being an attorney. It was a, not for me. Why? Why and did you hate it? Well, I just didn't, you know, it was not something that I wanted to do. I had a very few choices because my parents, uh, coming from a South American background and a Catholic upbringing, it's a very narrow-minded kind of thing. And so I sort of was into the situation where I needed to figure out what to do with my life, and it had to be a very dependable career. And um, my my parents come from humble um, origins, and so my my father had actually gotten much better in life and accumulated a certain amount of money that he actually spent paying for my my education. And I felt that I had a responsibility to make things right, given that I had had an opportunity that not really many people do. And so I went to law school, and then the obvious path is to go to New York and work for a big law firm, and uh, that's what I did. And mm. so it was very unfulfilling. It was miserable. <laughs> I did not like what I was doing, and I, you know, I stayed there for like a few years, maybe eight or nine. What type of law were you practicing? I was practicing corporate law, and uh, my like latest law firm, the things that I did the most was leveraged buyouts mm. and bonds. So it was very, it was terrible. <laughs> a lot of paperwork, a lot of nitty gritty, mundane uh, details, huh? Well, I love details, and actually, that's um, what has got. I think part of what has gotten me this far is that I pay attention to everything. It's not that. I think being an attorney is a very miserable thing. I mean, to work 16 hours a day every day, including weekends. Nobody wants that. You know, no, it doesn't really matter the amount of money. I think as an entrepreneur, really, and a business owner, I work a lot. But it's my thing, and it, it's enjoyable. And it's a lot. I have my hands in so many different parts of my business 
And so it's a very different thing when you get these deals that make no sense. Mm. They, they literally do not. And one of the reasons why the law profession in the United States has gotten, first of all, so expensive, right? You know, pay for attorneys and also so complex is because you need to keep adding more and more and more and more documents and more complexities to all the deals you do, right? Mm. And so that's what keeps law firms afloat is that no matter what you do, it's incredibly complicated. And it's, uh, it's, it's uh, I hate to say it, but it's almost like a mafia, right? I mean, and it's all kind of like a symbiotic system, right? It's so complicated and there are so many papers and there are so many documents and there are so many signatures and it just keep, keeps going and on and on and on and on forever, right? And so that's not what I came to this world to do because I knew that my talents were going to be appreciated somewhere else in a different way. And I also, I did not want to be um, told what to do anymore. Mm. And so in between having a child, my first child and the you know that entrepreneurial bug that I had inside and my desire to do a meaningful contribution to the world and to serve people in a different way was the impetus to leave that career behind and I never looked back and I have never been happier um that's fantastic 13 years and it's been the best that has ever happened to me to take that decision to make it you know to to actually have the courage to leave such a a safe environment where you get paid really well is pretty stable and you have all sorts of benefits and whatnot you, to just do my thing. You, you mentioned meaningful contribution. So what's what's so meaningful with the, the work that you're doing now versus you were, you were contributing in the law world, weren't you? You know, I was, but in a way that honestly, when you work with this deal that are billion dollar deals, back then I was doing billion dollar deals. And this was, as I'm telling you, 13, 14 years ago, and it was billions and billions of dollars. And so when you do that, you only see a certain piece of the transaction and it's kind of a microscopic thing, right? And, and look, I mean, I have many clients and friends on Wall Street and I love them, seriously, I'm nothing against but it's a very kind of like okay thank you next kind mm-hmm. of transactional right i mean you don't really build extraordinary relationships as an attorney unless you are a partner and you are in control of the relationship with those people right and so for me it was just like an exchange that did not really leave me fulfilled and again it was just like a piece of the transaction and it, i was leaving my whole life there And I just didn't see any sort of purpose or meaning into it, right? And so what I do right now allows me to bring um, happiness to my clients. It also benefits the artists. It benefits the galleries. It benefits the um, art fairs. And I have built a community around the world of people that have a passion for something with, like, intent and um you know art is a vehicle for change it's very immediate it's very educational it also opens up for a variety of very rich conversations and topics ranging from social justice to race to gender um to societal shifts and things like that and it has 
so many different connotations. I never get bored of what I do. I never really explore the whole thing because it's endless, right? I mean, like there are never, never enough time to get to know all the artists that are just up and coming because there are, you know, thousands. It's never been as incredibly hot and prolific as it's been in the past five years and it did yeah. not slow down with the pandemic and it's not going to slow down either so I feel that I found my place and I, I again I've been incredibly fortunate also to build artist careers because now after so long in this business people actually trust me so much I can put artists in galleries I, a recommendation helps a lot and um, I don't do that with everybody obviously I do that with certain amount of people that I really, really like and that I trust that I think that they are going to come forward. So I have a ha my hand in so many things that that really fill me and um, make me satisfied in a way that when I want journey, none of that was part of me. What do your clients say before they work with you? They have a... a let's say it's a, a corporate setting and they're looking to enhance the place because it needs a facelift. Um, what kind of feelings do they end up getting from your services when you bring in the art and you bring and you stage it and you're curating, like you said, uh, what are their experiences post working with you? Look, I mean, most of my clients have been with me for a long time, right? I mean, it's not a one time, one time shot type of thing because our collectors become art addicts and then they want more and more and more and more and more they have houses and they have offices and they have storages and things like that so it's like a really long-term relationship where i get to understand them and understand how they change throughout the years and what pleases them and what is not necessarily something that makes them excited but there are a, you know to answer your question, um, most of my clients obviously are thrilled to have valuable and interesting art on their walls and to um, also spark debate or conversation with their employees if they are in an office or with their family members or if they entertain people with whoever crosses you know, the door of their homes. And the beauty of this is that, uh, I mean, there are tons of uh, you know, studies and research papers that back up that in any environment makes people happier and it enhances the quality of life and things like that and whatnot, right? I mean, it's like the quality of, of where you are in your aesthetics and what you have around you actually have an impact on your mood, on how you feel, the, the motivation you have and all those things. So it's all kind of, it comes together to, for me and, and the way that I tell my clients is you're going to have an engagement of your eye, your heart, and your mind because the the way that, you know, contemporary art is right now and, and it's been for the past, you know, 30 years is this idea that the artists are giving you material to think and material to engage your heart and also they are giving you stuff so that your eyes are entertained and pleased you know so the 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 benefits are very 
and it all comes from you know art and so it's a it's a very satisfying career for me mm-hmm. and um you know my clients again keep coming back for more and uh, they, they want that more. is just they, how the whole thing speaks for itself they want more and more dopamine hits they can't get enough yeah yeah, yeah, you know what? We are in this world where we're always pressing a button and, um, you know, invested in, like, social media or, you know, sh- online shopping and things like that. It's a dopamine hit, right? And so if somebody has a desire to collect art and the money to pay for it, you know, I think it's a good thing. It's a it's a very – it's owning a piece of culture. It's owning a piece of history. Sure. It has much more permanence than let's say a an expensive piece of clothing right it has much more permanence than all the furniture that people have in their houses because that rotates and changes and people throw them out and so i am a huge advocate for people to put like their budgets in art when they can because it 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 appreciates in value if you know what you're doing and it all brings all this other things that i'm telling you like owning Owning something that is relevant and it's materially important to you at any given time in history. Now, are you creating any of your own artwork as well, Maria? No, I'm not, not an artist okay. um, in that sense, right? I think I'm an artist of ideas, but I'm not an artist myself. Um, that would require a lot of time and patience. And right now, I don't have a lot of time and neither patience. <laughs> So you're there strictly as uh, the visionary. You're the advisor. I am the visionary. When I started this business, people were not doing it the way I was doing it. And what were they there doing? was no, no Instagram either. What were so, they doing, Maria? Yep. What were they doing differently? You know, there was, for example, uh, several people acting as an art advisor would not really go that much into people's ha- houses and hang the work or help rotate for example they would also not educate their clients too much right or they would also not build audiences through blogging for example which is something that i took um as a part of my business an integral part of my business when i opened was first of all for me to understand what i was getting into and second also to educate people in an audience that maybe they were not my immediate clients, but they could be one day, or they could become fans, right, and followers and things like that, by giving them real value. And so I started just writing and doing it in a way that was understandable and um, not snob or trying to, you know, the, the art world can be very sometimes snobbish. And I just was the opposite. I said, well, it's still going to be the same thing that you know the magazines are writing about or the uh, our newspapers are writing about but I'm going to do it in a way that is mine and that people can relate and so that was very important to me and I think it paid off tremendously because it helped me build an audience on different platforms and I and again that was way before the the um, advent of Instagram which literally changed everything for everybody in the art world particularly for artists and galleries and um, it was uh, again like something that I set out to do in a different way 
And I am always adjusting and always pivoting and always tweaking because that's the only constant and that's why I'm so invested in this idea of teaching creativity and helping people come up with better ideas, even if they are dentists. Even I have had in my course oncologists, lawyers, engineers, architects, because I think that the most important thing for anybody who's right now trying to build a business, trying to grow a business, or even trying to keep a business relevant is to really dig into their creative capacities and put them out there in the world. And a lot of people forget how to do that because we're all born with a lot of creativity. But a lot of people forget how to do that and get stuck and get complacent. And so I am always looking for new ways to engage people or to go after a variety of other pursuits within the art world or or in very, very adjacent areas that can keep me excited too and that also allow me to learn a new skill or to, you know, enter a slightly different market from time to time. So you mentioned how Instagram has changed everything. Uh, yes. Talk a little bit about how did you grow your following? I was looking at your page. You've got over 100,000. And uh, how did your following grow over time? And what were some of the things that you were doing? And how has it impacted uh, your brand? I think that, as I said you know, before, when I started blogging um, and when Instagram started, I, I saw that as an extension kind of, kind of it, you know, like a fit for both things but I could promote or cross-promote my blog through Instagram. And also, I had, at the time, uh, written a, a book. It's a coffee table blog, and that was a long time ago. And it was a perfect platform to invite people to book readings and things like that with imagery. And the, the other thing that helped me tremendously was obviously, you know, the platform has changed. And so the same growth that I used to experience is not nearly the same these days. But at that time, I came with like a very fresh perspective that, again, a lot of these other art advisors were not even on Instagram. They didn't even have Twitter or Facebook. So I came in with a fresh perspective. My job is and continues to be to be so informed that I have to go to every or particular every but like as many art shows I can in New York City and that includes galleries and museums and things like that so I was photographing them and posting them very consistently there is no growth on any social media platform without a real consistent strategy unless you're a huge celebrity and you know you just post one picture once a month and that's it but that was not my case so I, I think consistency was very important to me. And at that time, it was a lot of cross-promotion with other people because I was featured in a lot of magazines and newspapers and things like that. So that helped the growth. Uh, and I also interviewed a lot of artists. So I created videos with them. I um, created blog posts with them. I wrote for Huffington Post for Culture Magazine for L. So all those like media outlets helped a lot when uh, or helped in the past, right? Like uh, to increase a following and people pay attention to you and this and that. So interesting. That was interesting. Yeah, yeah that's pretty neat. Uh, <clears throat> so have you ever had an experience where you've 
try to help a client and they end up being disappointed with the artwork that they chose or it makes them feel even worse? And if you have, how have you handled those situations? I don't think that has ever happened because they are paying me, right, to, to make the right, the, you know, purchases or choices. It, I think it could have been a case where they chose my least favorite, for example, right? Amongst two, three, or three things, they maybe have chosen the one that I like least. Mm. But, I mean, since I'm in control of the process, I show them things that I like. And it might not necessarily be my specific taste because there are two things that are very different, right? I mean, it's like I have a specific taste, the same things that I collect, I'm not imposing those onto my clients. I may overlap and they may have the same taste that I do. But the fact is that I try to have this enormous amount of empathy and put myself in their shoes and see what is it that they like and how can I serve them the best with their taste but in a way that makes sense and that they are still putting the money in the right place and collecting something that is worth it and that it will look good in their walls. So I, you know, if they go on their own and do whatever they want, that's their problem. And honestly, <laughs> you know, how can I like stop that? Right. But if it is something that I am suggesting and incorporating and helping and whatnot, then I mean, that's, scenario is very unlikely because I have already provided all the choices. So you did mention earlier that this art market is really explosive over the last few years especially and one of the things that has come out recently are these NFTs. Yes. And there's a lot of people and still including myself I'm, I know a little bit but most people have no idea what we're talking about. So Talk a little bit about what exactly are NFTs? Well, non-fungible tokens, meaning that only one person has one NFT and the they live on the bit I mean on the ledger, which is the Ethereum for most of the NFTs, right? And so what that happen, what that does is that it gives a lot of transparency to the art market because we know who owns what and uh, it also gives some control to the artist if the artist would want to program let's say royalties for every time there is a resale what most people don't understand is that a physical piece of art a tangible piece of art may have an accompanying nft and this is where I see the art world migrating more and more because the NFT that accompanies a physical piece of art is what's going to give people authentication certificates, is what's going to give people what I'm telling you about tracing the artwork, the royalties that may or may not get paid. It depends on what the artist programs within the NFT and so on and so forth, right? The, 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 the purely digital NFT is just that some an artist made an, a digital artwork that it might have been created in a computer or it might have been created out of the artist photographing real intangible objects or making a video whatever it is that ends up being a digital file and then it goes through the process of being minted on the ethereum 
uh, or in any blockchain, but mostly is Ethereum, and that generates a, you know, a long string of numbers and letters. And that's the identification of the NFT, and that's what you get as an owner. And so... But these are just digital, yeah. these are just digital copy, uh, di uh, digital copy, correct? This is well, all... Well, each NFT is unique. So... I mean, when you say not, when you even say non-fungible token, Maria, people are like, okay, what, what is? I'm even more confused. <laughs> so. Well, it means that you are the only owner of that NFT, right? But you can, I mean, you can sell it. Yeah, but what, but what exactly are you selling? To tell people yeah. what exactly are they selling? What is it? It's a file. It's a digital file. You have to sell the digital file and the accompanying NFT, both things, right? So the NFT, imagine that. The blockchain is just your ledger. Is that was where you write the transactions, right? And that did not exist. Um, I mean, it, it existed, but it was not used by artists as much. So, what it, once you have the, the the digital artwork that might live on your computer, or you may put it on one of those like Lazy.com that is a bunch of, you know, um, it can be your display page or whatever, and you want to sell it to someone. You just go ahead and then you do the transferring of the NFT from the ledger and also the digital file, which no longer is going to live on your computer, right? Because this person is going to have it. But let's say that you reproduced on your own the digital file. That's okay. I mean, but at the end of the day, what matters is the NFT, the long string of numbers and letters that is living on that ledger because that gives you bragging rights or and again, transferring rights, some NFTs, you know, the one that was sold by people and uh, earlier this year was $69 million. So you want to protect that, right? I mean, if you, that's for history. That will always be a piece of history because he made history that day. And what it, what this does again, it's, um, you know, it opens up a whole new avenue for artists, right? They don't have to depend on a gallery. Sure. They don't have to split their revenues half and half. Um, with the gallery either their production costs may diminish it depends um, they may access a whole nother group of people like Gen Z and Millennial that maybe they were not in touch before or that may be just a new thing for a young artist to start building up with NFTs with a young audience and since everything is paid with crypto and crypto is tied to not the economies of countries like a dollar or a euro, but it is also tied to a lot of speculative moves, right? I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot of money laundering too that goes into the back end of what's crypto, right? And so this is all something that it has to be taken seriously because it belongs to a new generation of people who are using these things. What, is, um, what, what do you see? Create, you need to acquire, to acquire assets. Yeah, but what kind of potential impact will this have on your business five, ten years from now? None. I mean, because, see, like, since uh, there are, you know, excavations that are 2,000 years old where people had art on their walls, right? I mean, the potential of my business is very, like, I mean, I need to understand what it is and kind of explain to people when they ask. But for my business, it you know, everybody who I work with want to have something on their walls. And it's not just a projection that comes from their phones, right? 
And uh, that is something that I have clients who are in their late 20s and I have clients who are in their early 80s and they all still want to live with art. And mm. so I don't think that's going to change. It really um, has been a part of the landmark of civilization for people to live with art. And I don't really see it changing. I see NFTs actually having a moment um, and, and, and part of me feel that, um, you know, this, this young generations feel that having NFTs is almost like having skins in games, like Fortnite and things like that. Mm -hmm. And you have to obviously buy them and keep them and this and that. And it's, it's interesting. You can have your little portfolio of NFTs if, if that's what you want to do. And that person may at some point start collecting art and play on their world, or you may be an art collector already. And you know what? You just you still want to play with NFTs. I mean, and this is not new. There, I, I worked many years ago with a company called Sedition, and they are based in London, and they were doing editions actually, but each edition was marked with a different type of, um, you know, a, a, a specific set of numbers, and and it was a code, if you will. And then you would have to plug them into your computer or uh, a television that actually Samsung manufacturer that is called a frame. And then it would rotate every three seconds or whatever speed you want it. So mm -hmm. that would be your collection of artworks on your TV or on the screen of your computer. And that's really neat, but I don't, that's never going to replace having a sculpture or a physical object it's not going to replace museums that keep acquiring young artists too. So it's uh, it's a very interesting world for sure. But I see it more as a as the path to what I'm telling you about the authenticity of goods and how a physical object can be actually um, be presented to the world with an NFT as well. Mm, interesting. What, what's the most expensive art uh, artwork that one of your clients has purchased? Well, one of my clients purchased an artwork at auction for $21 million. $21 million. What was it? It was a painting by Carrie James Marshall, and my client is uh, Puff Daddy. Your client is Puff Daddy, and he bought it for $21 million. Yeah. And... What does so that artist makes that one painting and that all those proceeds go to that artist? No, it's an auction. Oh, it was at an auction. The, yeah, the proceeds go to the owner who sold it, and the art the uh, auction house gets a percentage of that. Now, why was that piece in particular so expensive? What made it that that price? Well, the artist is incredibly famous. It's a it's a black man who is in his seventies and. He um, is, is phenomenal. He's one of, again, most important artists in the United States. And uh, he paints people, and he paints the black narrative, and his whole story, and the paintings are gorgeous, gigantic, and they have intrinsic messages that reflect the black experience and so this particular painting had been exhibited in uh, the Whitney Museum and in the mm, Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles amongst many many other museums and 
that also brings the price up if the uh, painting ha had or the sculpture a lot of exhibition history and very important mm. institutions that brings the price up and so this painting had been in the hands of private people who owned it and they loaned it to the museum so they could show them in those exhibitions and then the owner said okay it's time to let it go and I'm going to put it up for auction and it went for auction and um, you know this is this is what it was the final price, the hammer price that you call it. Now, now, do you refer to him as, as Puff Daddy when you talk to him, or do you call him by his real name? I call him Sean, but if I say Sean, nobody knows who I'm talking about, right? Right. right. So people yeah. that are close to him can call him by his first name. Most people call him Puff. Puff, Puff, okay. Yep. You know, something with this art world, it's incredible to me that these pieces have such value. I mean, they have they their value is whatever the value is perceived to be, whatever somebody wants, thinks that it's worth. It to me, some of this stuff it, it becomes so egotistical, and and I, I think it's just not in a negative way, but I think people just say, I want to make sure I'm the one that owns this piece. I'm going to spend twenty million dollars on this just to make sure I am the guy that gets it. Do you agree? Yes. Also, you know, it's a very different situation where in an option because you're competing against someone right, right and that brings all sorts of adrenaline shots to people and a desire to win the race no matter what it's a very different proposition if you walk in a gallery and somebody tells you that's 20 million bucks you might try to negotiate down you might walk away you said when to sleep on it i don't know i don't care right but it's a very different story when you are in a hot, you know, this is done on the phone um, because he wasn't present. You're watching it at the same time live on your computer and you have an underbidder who is just right behind you. And so that is the beauty or the disease, if you will, of an auction house, right? That you are creating so much adrenaline in your bitters that it's kind of very difficult to come back from that excitement. You know what I mean? It's, it's like there are people who enjoy having adrenaline rushes like jumping from parachutes and things like that, right? And a lot of musicians also will tell you that they get all these highs just by being on stage surrounded by, you know, 50,000 fans or 100,000 fans in arenas and things like that. So the auction house in this case appeals to that type of guy, right? And, you know, most of the time is a very wealthy man. I mean, women too, but with less amount um, of art collectors who get to that level. And, um, you know, it's it's a huge, it's a humongous business. It's I huge. mean, it's the, the auction house alone is... is such a huge business. Yeah, yeah, it is. Very interesting. This whole thing is very, very interesting to me. Uh, I don't know much about art, and I've never had a uh, wandering eye for it, to be honest with you. But I wanted to bring you on because, again, this is unique, and it's a business that's booming, and you've created something special. Um, before we finish up, where can people find you online? Well, come to my website. is mariabrito.com, B-R-I-T-O. And, uh, you know, I have a new weekly newsletter called The Groove that is always free and where I 
I intertwine topics of art, business, life, and creativity, and I I do it with you know a lot of research. So I take care of my readers because I really love them, and and that's great. And also, if they come to my website, they can find link to my online course and all the links to my social media handles so people can come and hang out with me if they perfect, want to. Perfect, perfect. We will link that up in the show notes. Last question for you. Um, was Goodwill Hunting your favorite movie? I love that movie a lot, but my favorite movie is The Social Network. The Social Network. Was that the one with uh, on Netflix? No, that oh. was an, an Oscar-nominated movie written by Aaron Sorkin, and it's the story of Facebook. Oh, okay, that's right. So, uh, was was uh, Goodwill Hunting an accurate portrayal of uh, your days at Harvard? Uh, I think they romanticize things a mm. lot, you know, and it's it's way different. I mean, and uh, for me, it was a very different experience. But uh, I think it's beautiful to see the way that they shot that movie, and also Matt is a Harvard dropout, so. You know, it's it's kind of cool, but uh, that was not. A, I don't think for me that it's an accurate portrayal of my days at Harvard. Mm, nope. mm. Actually, I lied. I do have one more question for you, Maria. Uh, yeah. You, you dropped uh, the Puff Daddy name. Let, you're, you're in New York. You're you're yeah. surrounded by all these big wigs. You obviously know a lot of high-profile people. Drop some names. Brag a little bit. Who are some other celebrities you're friends with? Well, you know, no. I I work with a lot of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and I'm bound by confidentiality with them. Oh, okay. Um, I have worked with Gwyneth Paltrow in different capacities. I've written for Goop. You know, I've helped her sometimes acquire certain things, but uh that's about it uh, oh, okay. uh yeah most most of my clients are are ceos and bankers very I, I also have a couple of uh big broadway producers uh a couple of big fashion designers but you know with buff and what it was very different because they actually talked about me and gave me a platform and uh, i i went to our basel for many years with buff together so it was um kind of like it was public and so with with other clients I don't have that freedom they are again maybe they are mainstream but I can't talk about them right I understand did, does Puff ever has, did he ever share with you uh, his thoughts or feelings about uh, his relationship with Notorious B.I.G.? well I think he had such respect for Biggie and uh but it was always part of his life, and and uh, he had a certain, you know, a variety of images and artworks, like um, tribute artworks that artists had given to him with Biggie's face, and uh, it was always something that he kept alive in a way, you know, very very important for him. And when I think the day of biggest his birthday is a day off in all his companies and things like that mm. so it's um you know it's it's a very important thing that he keeps alive um every day and he he tries to respect honor the memory, memory yeah he's honoring his biggie. memory yeah he honors yep. the memory so it, it's not true that uh biggie and tupac are on an island somewhere together right that's 
No, man. And with Michael Jackson and Elvis Presley, no, they're not. Hey, listen, thank you so much for today. This was great, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you, Nate. It's been a pleasure. Um, Thank you. Take care.